Crazy Chester Radio Hour. My guest today is a good friend of mine, Doug Moffat. He's a horn player based in Nashville who uh, often performs and records with the Muscle Shoals Horns. And we met a few years ago when he was playing with the Muscle Shoals Horns. Well, thank you for being my guest today, Doug. Thanks for coming by. Oh, definitely. It's an honor. I, I appreciate being asked to do it. Definitely. Yeah. So uh, let's go back to your beginning. You grew up in Wisconsin. Uh, yeah, actually, uh, in fourth grade, you know, I started, uh, my dad took me to a local school and, uh, they had, uh, teachers there playing instruments and that was in Evanston and Wilmette, Illinois. And, uh, you know, back in fourth grade, I put, I picked, you know, there's this guy there who's playing a little bit of jazz on the sax and I dug it. So, you know. I guess back in fourth grade, I decided early on I want I like saxophone. So, but then I got up into Madison, Wisconsin. We moved up there, and uh, you know, it wasn't I wasn't really into music until probably seventh and eighth grade. Um, friends of mine asked me to be in a garage band, and they were real creative young middle schoolers, you know, and we were all writing our own songs and playing some, uh, you know, covers, but we weren't really talented enough to pick off, some of us in the band weren't talented enough to pick off the songs in the, that we wanted to cover, so we had one guy that would help us figure out our parts, you know, but so that just meant we wrote more songs, so that was, that kind of got me inspired, you know, and then, you know, I think it was ninth grade, uh, my parents had always supported music education. They were firm believers in learning an instrument and getting me lessons. So I've always had a lot of different teachers. You know, it's like we lived in a university town in Madison. So there was uh, student teachers, you know, coming in and teaching lessons to young kids. And So I had, a, you know, a different teacher probably every year. They'd come and go and, you know, for various reasons, you know, with schooling and whatnot. Um, but I'd always take, you know, a classical saxophone lesson, and then I'd take a, a jazz saxophone lesson. And I remember in ninth grade, I went up to a place called uh, Shell Lake Jazz Camp, and it was actually a really good jazz camp. I went there for like four years, and uh, it was run by Indiana University people. Uh, teachers would come up to Shell Lake, Wisconsin, and, and teach there, and they had University of Wisconsin-Eau Claire uh, professors there teaching, and really almost like teaching college age jazz education to high school kids, you know. So ninth grade, I was turned on to Lester Young and Coleman Hawkins, and they gave us a discography of saxophone players to listen to, and I just, you know, went chronological. Like I started with Lester Young and Coleman Hawkins in ninth grade, you know, probably, and then, you know, got turned on to, you know, in 10th grade, some... Uh, student teacher at who's teaching our jazz band at my high school uh, he gave me a loaned me a copy of miles davis kind of blue album so i took that home and i you know picked off a cannonball adderleaf solo and played a john coltrane solo on alto and transcribed that in 10th grade you know and so you know really just learning from all those folks in in high school really got me uh to a, a good advanced point by the time I graduated in high school. I went, my last year I went to Interlochen Arts Academy and 
up in Michigan, Interlock in Michigan, and uh, there's a guy, Fred Hemke, who was a famous classical saxophone teacher from Northwestern University. He'd come up there every two weeks to Interlocken and teach lessons. So I'd take a lesson with him and then do the jazz band thing up at Interlocken for my last year in high school. And by the time high school was done, I was pretty well prepared to get on to University of Miami. And, you know, I was, you know, had a good education. I, I practiced a lot, so I was ready for it. I was serious about it from eighth grade on, really. Yeah. So as far as, as horns, did you start out on the alto sax or how did you... Move yeah. from one to the other. Yeah, it was alto sax, you know, pretty much, you know, fourth grade until maybe 10th grade. I uh, picked up tenor. I was always into learning how to, you know, improvise, learn how to improvise and playing with Abersol, you know, for my jazz saxophone lessons. So by 10th grade, I was definitely playing Abersol records, maybe even ninth grade. You know, I'm transcribing a little bit, and uh, you know, but you know, you get into jazz band situation, and if you're into improvisation, then you know, most of the tenor solos are, most of the solos are in the saxophone section are written for tenor. So you know, I uh, picked myself up a tenor, and just so I could, you know, blow some improv in the jazz band. So, yeah, by junior and senior, I was definitely seriously into tenor sax, but played both yeah so uh after you graduated high school you decided to go to university in miami and that university of miami is is very much well known as a horn players school a lot of great horn players have come through that school yeah definitely. how was that experience for you in miami i kind of lucked into the university of miami uh a friend of mine who was a trumpet player, we played in a small jazz ensemble, small jazz group, quintet, and then we also played in a bigger jazz band. We were graduating together and we were both thinking about, you know, going to school somewhere. And Miami at that time was still new. Uh, you had uh, North Texas State and, and then Indiana University and Berkeley. College of Music, that they were all well known, but University of Miami was, you know, brand new to me. And and there was actually a couple of interlocking students that went to University of Miami. Joel McNeely, who's now writing movie scores out in L.A. But my band, jazz band director, would say, "Well, Joel went down to University of Miami. You should go check it out." So we went down there, checked it out, and I could have gone to either one of those schools, really, you know. They offered me a little bit of money from each one of them. Um, but there's something cool about the University of Miami. is more contemporary jazz scene. It's just felt. Uh, cool thing about University of Miami, I learned since going there, was that, you know, the guy who started that program was guy Bill Lee. And his he's the dad of Will Lee, who plays, you know, famous bass player. And Bill uh, Lee was just always you know, really appreciative and supporting of of jazz as an art form. And so if he was the uh, the president or whatever you call it, you know, of the music school, he, Bill Lee was the head honcho of the, of the music school. You know, he basically, I think, got that program started and he uh, hired Jerry Coker. Jerry Coker is, then went on to various other colleges and I think he retired after working in Knoxville, uh, UT, University of Tennessee. But Jerry Coker wrote Patterns for Jazz, and I was already working out of Patterns for Jazz as a high school kid. And then quickly, I think Jerry was only down there three, four years, and then he gave, handed it over to Witt Seidner. And, you know, by the time I went down to Miami in 78, I think, you know, Hiram Bullock and and Pat Metheny and Jaco Pastores were there from like, I don't know, 72 to 76, all half of Metheny's band. Dixie Dregs had graduated from there just about four or six years before I went in 78. So yeah, the word was out about the University of Miami in 78 for sure. But, uh, you know, going down there, I had no idea how many great saxophone players I would learn from down there. I mean, really, seriously, I, I had a different sax teacher every semester there's so many good 
you know, seasoned professional guys coming back for their masters or their doctorates teaching there, let alone three Sachs professors that were full time there. So they had a plethora of saxophone teachers there to learn from. Uh, and a, it was just a great experience. You know, it's a well run school, well designed, you know, program. Learned a lot really equally from the students as I did the teachers. I mean, the students down there have gone on to do great things. Andy Snitzer would be one of them. You know, he's a big session guy in New York. We were there at the same time. Rick Margitsu was there at the same time I was. And he's uh, put out like, I don't know, 10 or 15 jazz records, Blue Note. He's living in Paris, France now. And Ed Caillé is a big session player down in Miami. He's a great player. He plays with Arturo Sandoval. He was down there at the same time I was. Mario Cruz. I mean, just tons of saxophone players. I remember taking a year off from uh, college just to kind of roam around, you know, hitchhike a little bit and go camp out and, you know, and I was just, you know, checking out other cities to, to think about where, you know, where I might want to end up. You know, I went to San Fran and L.A. and West Coast and Boston and New York and, you know, wandered around the country. And, but then I realized, you know, I was learning so much after all those, that year off and traveling around, I realized, uh, you know, per capita, the amount of great saxophone players down in Miami at that time were, you couldn't beat it. You know, I mean, they probably had 100 different saxophone players in the Miami area and at the school, and a lot of them were... <laughs> world-class players. So I decided to go back to Miami and finish up school there rather than, you know, switch schools, go someplace else. So, yeah, you know, taught, I was always a good reader, but definitely fine-tuned my reading. I played in local uh, Miami Latin bands. That really grew, uh, made my appreciation grow for Latin music, you know, playing with the real deal Cuban bass players or Colombian bass players. There's one uh, club I used to play at, or sub in, you know, my roommate played in the band and I would sub in the band. And uh, it was a high, high dollar Latin club. That uh, it's funny, I was on winter break uh, from school and, and they were doing a, a program on, uh, you know, the cocaine queen of Miami. And I, it was on NBC News, I still remember it. I'm going, hey, that's my band, that's the band I play with on, on TV. And I, it's then I realized after, you know, subbing in the band that it was owned by the cocaine queen of Miami. I had always heard that, you know, her boyfriend ran the club and always came in a different Mercedes Benz every month. And, but, you know, I, I knew there was a connection, but it was a real clean, high-dollar club, you know. Nothing funny went on. But it wasn't until I saw it on NBC News that I realized what kind of connections it had, you know. Uh, the regular Latin band I played in was like a, a 11 to 3 o'clock in the morning Latin band off 8th Street where people would get shot in the bathroom, you know, and they'd come out, I'd be out smoking cigarettes outside and trombone player would come out to me and say, man, they want you to leave. You know, somebody just got shot in the bathroom. They don't want anybody around when the cops show up. So <laughs> it only happened once, but, you know, those are just kind of funny, weird stories of my Miami time. But really, playing Latin music was, I love Latin music to this day. And it's mathematically, rhythmically complex to uh, read that music. So, you know, it really fine-tuned my reading skills to play Latin music, no doubt, and my rhythm skills as far as just, you know, finding a pocket when the Latin bass player is like never hitting one, you know. I'm just going, it just had a, a lopy type of funny feel to it for me as a young guy, you know, when the bass player is always kind of just ever so gently anticipating one to make it kind of roll, you know, and so, and I remember one horn player in the horn section said, just don't listen to the bass, just listen to, the, you know, the cowbell or claves or, you know, different parts of the rhythm section, don't listen to the bass, it'll, it'll throw you off. Sometimes I would start going with the bass and anticipating when I wasn't supposed to, you know, just learning, you know, yeah. as a college kid. But it was a great learning experience for sure. So after you graduated, what were some of your early 
gigs and what eventually led you up here to Nashville? Well, I had a, you know, a fellow friend and a classmate. He was a couple years older. His name was Tim Smith. He's a bass player. And he, he was living in Nashville, kind of living in L.A. and then mainly going to living in Nashville. He was playing with Paul McCartney's uh, drummer uh, of Wings, the Wings Band drummer, uh, Joe English. Yeah. And so Tim was playing with Joe English, and Tim was a smooth-talking type of guy. You know, he's he's always excited about the music, and so he talked Joe into help. You know, letting him help produce the horn section that Joe wanted to put on, and so. Uh, uh, Tim Smith got me and a couple of his friends from Indiana University uh, to do some horns on Joe English album, and also uh, a guy named Judson Spence, who at that time was just putting out his first uh, contemporary Christian album. And later Judson went on to do a, a Pop 40 album that I played on. We went to Japan with Judson and did... Uh, New Orleans during Mardi Gras and MTV TV show. That was a cool experience, but really it was Tim Smith that turned me on to Nashville. Nashville wasn't on my radar at all. I knew nothing about Nashville. Absolutely nothing. I was a, a jazz improvising type of guy. and But really when it comes down to it, I just like playing music. And so no matter what kind of music I'm playing, I like playing. So it, it really doesn't have to be any particular type of music. You know, I like playing any type of music. You know, whether I go out and buy it, you know, I might not go out and buy it, but I like playing it. So, you know, I came to Nashville and played on these two albums. I'm going, yeah, it's a cool place, you know. I, I like it. It's green. It's got trees, you know. It's not like going to New York City or L.A., you know. It's It's got a, you know, relatively city feel. It's kind of a mid-time, you know, it almost felt like a, a town, you know, had a didn't really have a big city feel. It wasn't until the 2000s when it really started growing and becoming a real city. You know, it's like uh, I remember, you know, waiting 25 years for this town to grow up into a city, and when it finally did, and all the traffic cars and driving around, you know, all the bad traffic came with it. I finally, grow grew up into a city and. Now I want to move away because too much traffic, you know. No, nah, I don't really want to move away. I'm too established. But, you know, it's funny. I waited so long for it to become city, and, and it finally did, you know. But, yeah, those two projects, and I thought, okay, well, I'll try and check out Nashville. You know, I didn't think I was good enough to really make it in New York. And, you know, I was used to hearing Rick Margetza play, and, he, you know, I didn't think I could compete with Rick Margetza, so. I'm sure there was 10 other guys who sounded like Rick Margitz in New York, you know. In L.A., I wasn't all that excited about it. I would have enjoyed going there and, and playing the music there, for sure. And I think I could have made a living in either, either one of those cities. But I have no regrets coming to Nashville, you know. It's it's treated me well, and, you know, it's got a vibrant music uh, scene that keeps on growing, you know. So, and, you know, getting a chance to play with the Muscle Shoals guys, you know, that was, that was a neat thing. I, I remember, uh, I don't know, it was around 93, and I'd already been doing, I first met Charles Rose uh, at a, on an Opperland gig. I was working Opperland like six days a week, five shows a day, and so uh, Charles came in and subbed for the trombone chair. I didn't know who he was, you know. I didn't really know too much about Muscle Shoals at all back in 84, you know. You know, I got here in Nashville in 83, so yeah, I probably met Charles in, I don't know, 86, 87, 80. I, actually, it might have been later than that. Not sure when I... I know it was probably late 80s, early 90s, Charles had made a go of uh, living in Nashville couple of years and he subbed an opera land gig and I just automatically knew he was a great player great intonation you know and because he's sitting right behind me and I know the the music so well those opera land shows we'd play them five day 
five shows a, a day for six days a week. I mean, you know, I could read I could read a book and play the show. In fact, I played the show better when I was reading a book because then I wasn't distracted by other stuff. I was just reading my book and playing the part, you know. And I knew everybody's part, you know, pretty much. You know, I knew if it was sounding good. And, you know, Charles sounded for a guy to come in and sub the show, sight reading. Just, you know, so I went up to Charles and said, hey, sound great back there. I'm Doug, you know. And then my fellow trumpet playing friend Jim Williamson said, yeah, that's Charles Rose. He's the guy that works down Muscle Shoals, you know. I've told you about him. I'm going, yeah, yeah, I've, I've heard about y'all. You know, and then I started doing a couple sessions with Charles, you know. Uh, Harvey would either be going out with, uh, he, he couldn't make it, or mainly it was probably at that time Jim Horn was too busy, and so I'd be subbing for Jim Horn. And then Harvey sometimes on some summer gigs uh, would go with Lyle when he only had one sax and it wasn't a horn section. So then I'd sub in Muscle Shoals horn projects, you know, recording projects for either Harvey when he was out in the summertime or Jim when he was out touring with or too busy to do it. So, you know, but 93 is when uh, Jim Horn and I were doing a session in Nash Nashville. There's three saxophones. There's Jim Horn, Jim Hoke, and I. And Horn said, hey, Doug, you know, Muscle Shoals guys got a tour of Europe. I can't do it. You want to do it? And it was kind of a last-minute thing, like within two weeks or something of, of leaving or three weeks, I don't know. And so I said, sure, I'll go do it. I've never been to Europe. I'd like to go to Europe. So, you know, in 93, we went to Europe, and they had already made the, like, the luggage bag tags with Jim Horn's name on it. So it was definitely kind of that kind of last-minute thing. And so I was, you know, had Jim Horn's uh, luggage bag tags on all my bags that were going around Europe, you know. But, uh, you know, that's where I got to know the rhythm section, Muscle Shoals rhythm section, all those guys, you know, going out on the road with them for three weeks to a month, you know. And, and you know, even though I'd been doing a little bit of recording down there, it was probably mostly horn section overdub type stuff. You know, not really getting to know the guys all that much. And then after that tour, I'd come back and we were, back in the 90s, they were still recording live band stuff with horns yeah, down in Muscle Shoals for Malico projects, blues projects. And so I got to know those guys better in the 90s doing that. So, you know, that's one thing that's cool about Muscle Shoals and working with those guys is that, you know, it's a down-home feeling and vibe. They really do care about the music down there. and It's uh, like we'll be doing horn section uh, recordings, overdubs, and some of the, you know, like Will McFarlane and David Hood show up, just say, hey, you know, to the horn section overdub. They're not even working that day, but they'd come in and say hi. They want to hear what the project was sounding like and what it sounded like with horns, you know. They're excited to hear, you know, what it was going to sound like with horns. So, you know, it took me a while to figure out that's what they were doing. I just thought they were hanging out. They knew the star or the producer and they're just you know but now they're coming by to say hi and we're curious about the project and I think that comes out in the Muscle Shoals sound of the music you know where you know they really got some mojo going on and it gets to tape you know they really love the stuff that they're doing and and the projects that they get into and they care about it enough to show up check out the horn section as they record you know so you don't ever see that really in Nashville. I don't think I've ever seen that in Nashville where the rhythm guys would come back during a horn overdub and come check out what's what it's going to sound like. I'm not sure Nashville being a bigger city, whether they're really invited to come back and check us out. But, you know, that's one cool thing I really like about working with Muscle Shoals. You know, it's just I think that vibe gets to gets to tape, you know. Uh, after hearing David Hood's interview the other day with uh, Chester Records and Charles Rose's interview with Chester Records, it was kind of like, man, you know, I've been working with these guys 25, 30 years now, and it's like pretty much everything David said in his interview was news to me. I mean, that was cool. I liked hearing all those old stories. 
Charles, you know, since I've worked with him more in overdub horn section situations, I'd probably heard half the stories, but maybe not as much detail. So it was kind of like I enjoyed listening to Charles Rose interview as well before I came here to do this, you know. I'm always learning, you know, the past of of the Muscle Shoals scene, you know. It's like every time I go down there, I learn something new. You know, yeah, that's kind of one of the reasons why I started a podcast because I'm around those guys a lot and they just break out these stories and I'm like, these stories are so entertaining. I would like to find a way to sh- yeah. you know, share those a little bit yeah, more. Yeah, definitely. And when I interviewed David, I made an effort to actually not necessarily ask him just the most obvious questions because I know he's been, ha- you know, he had to answer those plenty of times before. So I'm glad that you picked up on that because there was certainly an intention there to have him told, tell a few uh, tales that have not necessarily been as covered. You know, I've, I've heard some of those tales, but probably not, all, not as many as I heard on the interview the other day. I mean, you know, I was like, holy cow. I was, it was eye-opening to me. You know, it was neat hearing all that, that stuff and hearing about the history more, yeah. you know. I mean, you know, every, every occasionally I would ask Charles, well, what was it like flying on the plane with Elton John? And he wouldn't really get into it. He'd just say, oh, you know, just like a plane. <laughs> get on the plane, go. <laughs> I had our own plane. That was cool. <laughs> yeah. Something like that, you know. So talking about Charles, how you talked a little bit about his, you know, playing, but how do you perceive him as a as an arranger and a horn section leader? Because usually when it's a muscle shoals, horn session it's his chart and it's his direction how is that oh you know being a horn player you really get in a, put into a wide variety of situations i mean all types of music all types of gigs under wide variety of bosses and arrangers i've been really fortunate to uh play and with so many great players and so many great horn arrangers and Charles Rose is one of those great horn arrangers. I mean, he just brings something that's a classic sound to that type of music. Uh, you know, he, he makes uh, the horn lines, I always tell him, you know, that fits the music like a glove, you know. You know, just you put that horn glove on the, on the song and it just fits naturally, you know. And his ears are just amazing. He hears everything. You know, I mean, he's got great ears. I always joke around when we're doing some Muscle Shoals Horns gigs and Charles can't make it, but he contracts us and we're playing his charts. I tell the guys, hey, man, even though Charles is not here, he's going to hear if you don't play that short note that's marked. Because, <laughs> <laughs> you know, he hears it. You know, there's you can't, he doesn't let anything slide either, you know. So, you know, uh, Charles Rose, uh, you know, uh, whole bunch of different arrangers in Nashville. I get it. Uh, Chris McDonald be one. Lloyd Berry be another. Uh, uh, just got a chance to work with Rob Muncie, who did the Steely Dan horn charts. That was a live rhythm thing the other day for uh, Elliot Shiner, which is real, way cool. Rob Muncie and Elliot Shiner together. I mean, G-M-N-A. That was, that was cool. Uh, uh, Tim Akers, he's a great horn arranger. So, yeah, you know, when I heard David Hood's interview the other day about how, you know, there's a point where uh, Fame Music wanted them, their rhythm section to be exclusive, I could really relate to that story because, you know, as a horn player, you're always the last one to be hired, first one to be fired. You know, it's, it's an added expense to the band and the project. So sometimes they can afford horns, some, most times they can't. They might want them, but, you know, they can't. They really don't want to spend the money on it. So, you know, not, you know the exclusive factor was really limits your possibility as a freelance, self-employed musician to make money. So, you know, if people are digging on what you're doing, you want to be able to work as, with as many people as you can. And, you know, fortunately, I've been able to, you know, do that and, and work with other horn players and, and great musicians that uh, are able to do the same thing. But it's always a constant struggle being self-employed and 
it goes up and down every year you know you know it's for all of us really i mean you know some some guys will have longer runs than others <laughs> but you know uh, to be able to you know play with so many different situations and how charles rose brings that certain certain sound to the to the song is always i just try and open up an ear and check out what he's doing and how he does it because you know every time i learn something you know slowly but surely i learn something so that's why i look at it you know just trying never think you're too good you know you're always trying to learn something you know always trying to get better i remember you know after a rehearsal one time david hood sounded good and i said hey man sound good david and he said, yeah, I hope I can do it again tonight on the gig. You know, that was just a perfect example of a, a musician perfectionist always wanting to sound good and always wanting to, you never know when you can, you're going to mess up. And so you want to make sure you don't mess up. You want to try and get better, you know. And, you know, when he, uh, David in the interview was talking about uh, learning a different style of music, I feel like I'm still learning uh, blues and R&B music even still. At this stage, and you know, to play a solo on a on a blues, I mean, come from my jazz background. Uh, learning the blues style is is still evolving. You know, I've gotten better at it. Yeah, but uh, you know, I still want to be as good as the greats. You know, eventually. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Have you ever thought about doing your own record? Oh, I've thought about it through the years, for sure, uh, always, you know, every year think about it. But then I've, as the music business has evolved from LPs to cassettes to CDs to digital downloads, you know, iTunes and, and, and uh, you know, the, the music business has changed financially for the record companies, you know, and the artists. So, and the royalties that derive from radio airplay, you know. So, yes, I still want to put out an album, you know, but I guess part of it is, uh, you know, I'm thinking I'm just going to have to do it all myself and sell it online by myself or something, you know, to make any kind of money. I'm not sure I'm ready to go out and tour with a project, you know. I still have to, you know, make money doing what I do. So, you know, being a freelance saxophone player, you just kind of, I guess I've, you know, kind of been kept a little bit too busy to get into my own project and in certain ways, you know, for some years I've been fortunate enough to been busy enough to, you know, that's kept me occupied, you know. So unfortunately, you know, I've never put out my own solo project. Maybe one of these days. I, I still got it in there somewhere. I'm still thinking that those thoughts are, and ideas and musical ideas are still going through my head. You know, being such a fan of improvisation, you know, and, and playing solos, you know, I've always got musical ideas running through my head. So I'm going, well, I need to write that down, you know. Sometimes I do. Sometimes I just record it, bits and pieces here and there. Yeah. So you mentioned earlier with, you know, mainly having a jazz background, you know, going through school and all that. And here uh, being part of a lot of sessions, there are more, you know, pop, R&B, country, rock. But you still got to do the jazz thing uh, often. And one of your, you know, employers or collaborators has been Larry Carlton. How did that connection come about you know Larry what a legend anytime you get to work and record with Larry it's like you're one removed from almost everybody in the industry I mean from Quincy Jones to anybody you know uh, you know it's, it's it was an amazing experience cool thing about Larry you know is he always wanted to do a blues project with horns he just always wanted to do that you know and so he finally got a chance to do that. And uh, fortunately, you know, he hired a horn section from Nashville, 
I think it was different guys on the album. One one of the guys was the same. Mark Douthat was the same, I believe. But I think, uh, you know, different guys played that album, the blues uh, album that he did. But we went out and toured with him uh, for that project. And uh, so he took us all over the world. I mean, Japan, I don't know. I've been Japan five times with Larry, Thailand twice, South Korea, all over Europe. So, yeah, you know, it was interesting to see what the rest of the world thought about, you know, Larry's music and jazz in general. Because uh, with that size band, you know, four guys in a band and four guys in the horn section, I was playing baritone sax at that time. I mean, that's an expensive band to fly around and put up in hotels. And so we were kind of delegated mainly to uh, festivals. And so that was cool because then you got to see a whole bunch of other musicians and uh, hear a bunch of music, you know, at all these different festivals. You know, especially in the United States. I don't. I think we only played two clubs in the United States. The rest were festivals. But even in Europe, it was mainly festivals. And Thailand, it was festivals. Korea, South Korea, was festivals. In Japan, you know, Blue Note clubs could afford they, to hire the band. For like five days so yeah you know hearing Larry play every night for those two years and doing another album one of those albums got uh, nominated for a Grammy for rock instrumental <laughs> but I think it was Firewire I think is the name of the album but uh, you know Larry you know backstage he would uh, constantly be listening on the internet to L.A. jazz radio stations or John Coltrane. And he'd play all these wicked chords backstage when he was warming up. It sounded like Bill Evans at the voicings he was playing on guitars. Like, it was just kind of totally different than what you heard on stage. Not totally. I mean, he'd throw that out there on stage sometimes. But he'd get off on a chord pattern, you know, just trying to come up with something new. And, and his fingers would go places probably that he wasn't even used to going, you know. He'd be trying to figure out something new, you know. And it, even though he didn't like generally players who played a lot of notes, you know, or played too fast and leave enough space, you know, that wasn't his style. You know, he's more soulful. You know, he would still hear that soul in Coltrane, you know, and he'd listen to Coltrane a lot. You know, it almost seems like every time I went back to his dressing room, he was either L.A. Jazz Station or Coltrane, you know. So it was, it was interesting, you know, to see that side of Larry. But, uh, yeah, it was a cool experience, great horn section, you know. So it was neat. Yeah. Did you play Eric Clapton's Crossroads Festivals with him? Yeah, we did uh, the Crossroads, Eric Clapton Crossroads in Dallas with Larry. And then I did uh, the Crossroads show in Chicago with Vince Gill. And, and working with Vince Gill, it was the same horn section. Uh, Sapphire Blue Horns was the name our... Uh, Larry was so committed to the horn section, he actually copyrighted Sapphire Blue Horns. You know, that's kind of an honor for Larry to do that. But I think he, it was more of business reasons, but still, kind of cool. So, you know, we brought the Sapphire Blues. It was Barry Green, Mark Douth, and Mike Haynes and I. Uh, out on the uh, Mark got us that gig with Vince Gill and so we went straight from touring with Larry Carlton for a year two years to a year and a half you know to touring with Vince Gill for a year and a half to two years and, uh, you know so you know it was uh, going to Eric Clapton uh, Crossroads gigs that was just something way cool I mean you know any great guitar player that's ever existed was like playing on those things i mean you walk around backstage and you don't know where to look first i mean there's so many famous people walking around you know so as a musician you know a fan of mus other musicians i was you know everybody's all just kind of awestruck with everybody who was hanging out and being there and it's an amazing thing that you know what eric has done to, for the benefit you know it's all kind of a benefit and but it's a production you know so everybody gets paid. Maybe the artists don't get paid. I don't really know. But, you know, their bands get paid. And, but it's just a good thing, you know. Uh, 
people still tell me, yeah, I just saw you on TV the other day at the Eric Clapton thing. You know, they rerun that thing forever and a day. You know, obviously for the benefit reasons. You know, but yeah, that was way cool. <laughs> when I researched doing this podcast, something I didn't know, but somebody else you performed with was Randy Newman, and I love Randy Newman. Oh yeah. What kind of gig was that? Oh, that was just Nashville Symphony Pops gig. I was playing in the saxophone section. And, uh, you know, why I finally remember that and, and bothered to put that on a resume is just, you know, Randy Newman himself. Uh, I mean, he's one of two guys I've bothered to really bug, you know, to ask for an autograph. I mean, I've played with a lot of famous people. And I usually see them have to sign a lot of autographs, and I don't want to bug them anymore for to sign another autograph for their band member. You know, so I just don't really bother to bug him, you know. But with uh, Randy Newman, you know, he's one of the few composers that's made me laugh and cry, you know. And I just was blown away by his songwriting, you know. And so I said, yeah, put that down when you're signing the autograph. Thanks, you know, for laughing and crying. I can't remember what it said, but I said put that in there. <laughs> he came up with a cute thing, you know, at the end kind of to laugh it off you know I wish I could remember what he said something I hope I didn't mess you up too bad or something like that and then the other guy was Pat Metheny I was in a airport you know and chatted him down and you know asked him for an autograph just because I'm such a big Pat Metheny fan my wife uh, Mary's huge Pat Metheny fan you know so it's kind of like I made made Pat make it out to my wife Mary and that kind of won her over. I think we were dating at the time, and when I gave her that autograph, you know, I've just flipped her out. <laughs> That's probably why she married me. It's <laughs> because I got her a Pat Metheny autograph. <laughs> yeah, well, that was a good move then. Yeah. I, you know, was, speaking of autographs, you know, doing a Leonard Skinner 20 album, uh, those guys are music fans, Leonard Skinner guys, everybody in the band, you know, they're just fans of the musicians who record the music. They came up to the horn section, you know, when we were doing the overdub, and they asked us all for autographs. And I'm, you know, I was the only one who said, well, if you're going to ask for my autograph, I'm going to ask for your autograph. So, you know, I got three autographs sitting in a pile somewhere. Hadn't put them up on the wall yet, but one of these days I might get around to it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So you've also been part of many memorable recording sessions, I know. One that sticks out and uh, that happened fairly recently, early this year, was when you, as part of the Muscle Shoals Horns, played uh, for Paul McCartney. Oh, uh, yeah. You know, what What musician is not a fan of Paul McCartney? I mean, you know, uh, all the guys in the horn section were, you know, trying not to freak out too much before we went, you know, because, <laughs> you know, shoot. I remember that's one of my first musical memories as as a kid and I, you know, probably fourth grade is going downstairs before everybody woke up and putting, you know, Beatles records on the, on the player and listening to both sides, you know. That's my first musically memory almost. So, yeah, I got a funny story on the, you know, I would say about a third of it was uh, sung to us by Paul, you know, th through the, control room he'd sing sing us the line through the mic line and we'd pick it off or a third of it was uh we'd have to pick off an existing guitar line uh, that was on the tracks already and then a third of it was written out so we did six songs and three songs made the album and i hope one of these days you know who knows they might release the other three eventually so i'd like to hear what they sounded like but yeah you know a funny story was that uh you know, after about the third song, we were kind of taking a break, and Paul came out of the control room. He came up, you know, outside to the horn studio room, and he was just hanging out, you know, talking, getting to know each other, you know, really. He did that at the beginning of the day, but then he went back in the control room. So in the middle of the day, he come came out and talked to us, and uh, we were just, you know, listening to him talk, basically, and just saying hi. And, and he said... You know, I love having horns, and you know, did you realize that I first, my first instrument was trumpet? 
And I didn't realize that. I think maybe some of the other guys did. Um, but he said, yeah, you know, but I got to a point where I couldn't sing and play trumpet. So I asked my dad as a kid, you know, if I could go trade in my trumpet at the, at the pawn store, get me a guitar so I could sing and play guitar at the same time. And we all thought, well, that was a good idea, Paul. <laughs> Switching over to guitar was a good idea. <laughs> you know? Worked out for we're, him. Yeah, it worked sure. out for him. So we're all laughing about that. And, and then Steve Herman, who was playing trumpet, he said, yeah, you know, he, uh, Paul was asking about his trumpets and just looking at all the horns we lined up. Because Charles, since he wasn't writing the charts, they asked him not to write anything. They just wanted to do it by head charts. You know, Charles didn't know what to expect, so he told everybody involved to just bring every, pretty much everything they owned. So our cartridge bills to get out to L.A. were high, you know. I mean, Tom Malone, Tom Bones Malone was bringing trumpets and trombones and saxophones and flutes, you know. And I was bringing, you know, clarinet and flute, alto flute and alto and soprano and tenor. And uh, Jim Hoke was bringing baritone and tenor, clarinet, and, and he brought his harmonicas. And then, you know, Steve had his uh, trumpet and his cornet and his flugel. And so uh, Paul went up to Steve and said, is that, is that a cornet? He said, yeah, that cornet I got from a guitar player, played with Delbert McClinton and his dad. That was his dad's cornet. And his dad played with Paul Whiteman. And Paul McCartney freaked out when he heard that. He said, that was my dad's favorite band. Paul Whiteman Orchestra was my dad's favorite band. And so he picked up Steve Herman's cornet. And, you know, you could tell he hadn't played trumpet in at least a decade, you know. Uh, who knows? I mean, he's multi-instrumentalist himself, but I doubt if he picks up a trumpet. And so he, he started playing about eight bars of Saints, you know, and just kind of trying to remember in the fingerings, but most of it was just his chops pushing the note through, you know, barely squeaking out Saints on his on the cornet, you know. But I just, you know, we all had a good laugh when you heard him, uh, you know, squeak out some Saints on the cornet. But it's just kind of cool to see Paul, you know, excited about, you know, a, an old Paul Whiteman orchestra trumpet player's trumpet, or cornet, I should say, you know. And it, it kind of made me wonder if, well, I wonder if that's how he got his name. You know, his dad was a fan of Paul Whiteman. Maybe that's why he named Paul Paul. You know, so who knows? I don't know that. He didn't say that, but it just—it definitely made me wonder about that. Yeah, that's a great story, too. Yeah, yeah it was fun. Fun gig. And we were almost at the end of, okay. of our interview, but you are on another record that's now just out, Willie Nelson's My Way album. That was fun. That was Chris McDonald arrangement. Uh, uh, the keyboard player. Uh, played with Lyle Levitt. Yeah. And Matt. Matt Rawlings. Matt Rawlings. He was producing and, and helping uh, uh, Chris a little bit with horn arrangements. Uh, Willie wasn't there that day, but it was cool. It was big band stuff, and Willie did it. I have heard the album, and Willie sounds great on that album. I mean, he really brings a, a raw, authentic quality to those old jazz standards. It's really unique. I mean, it's... I think that's you know, it's a cool sounding album. So, you know, I'm proud to have done that this year, you know. So between Paul Willie and did a Garth Brooks project this year, so you know, I mean you know, it's uh, two thousand eighteen has been an up year. So it's been good for work, so I can't complain. Yeah. Yeah. Well I'm glad to hear that and uh thanks again for spending these past hour with me here and talking about your life and music i sure appreciate that oh definitely i i kind of started talking too much i didn't even let you ask a question i'm amazed i talked that much i don't know how that happened normally that doesn't happen at all normally i don't say anything at a session <laughs> well i like when that happens because to me that's it's it's about your story and not about me so the more you talk the better for the program I kind of got on a roll after listening to David Hood's interview and Charles Charles Rose's interview. It made me think a little bit about it, you know. So I started, I got a, a roll on, I guess. <laughs> well, anyway, I wish you 
all the best and I hope we'll get to do a lot of sessions and projects together in the future. Definitely, Andreas, and cheers to Chester Records. I hope it I hope it does well. I want to help you out as much as I can. Yeah. All right. Well, well maybe you have to get that Doug Moffat record off the ground one of these days. Yeah, well, there you go. All right. Sounds good to me. This was the 40th episode of the Crazy Chester Radio Hour. If you enjoyed today's episode, please make sure to subscribe to the Crazy Chester Radio Hour podcast on iTunes or check it out on YouTube, TuneIn, Stitcher or SoundCloud. That's it for today. I'll see you next week.